Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of PageCast. We have an incredible lineup of author interviews, so head over to our Facebook and Instagram and follow Jonathan Ball Publishers to stay updated and in the know regarding future episodes. Thanks for your interest in the story behind the story. Happy reading from everyone at PageCast. Welcome, Zizi, and it's always so wonderful to... Um to, to be in conversation with you, to see you, to encounter you over and over again um, on, on, the, on the page. So let's start then on, a, on, a, on, a, on an oblique note. In the same week that you were shortlisted for the Booker Prize, was the week that you got shortlisted, or the announcement was made that you were shortlisted for the Booker Prize, was the week that you were also arrested um, in, 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 in Harare for, for, for inciting public violence. And as I reread this morning body um, for our conversation now, I, I couldn't help but be struck by, 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 the, by the kind of bizarre coincidence for, 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 for a writer, especially because in this morning, in, in, in this, in this honorable body, um, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a repeated phrase about how contemporary Zimbabwe is a peaceful country. <laughs> <laughs> And so I wondered if you um, can share with us some of your reflections on, 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 on what, you know, on being a writer who's both um, incredibly being celebrated in the world and also being arrested for peaceful protests, but for inciting um, public violence at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yes, um, thank you so much, Pumla, for that wonderful introduction. You do exaggerate, but please continue to exaggerate. <laughs> It's always wonderful to sit and talk to you, and thank you everyone for coming. It's really wonderful that we are communing again in person, as Pumla said. Um, I do want to say one more thing before I go into your question. Um, you cited those prizes, beginning with the German, the Peace Prize of the German book trade. In fact, you contributed to that. I want to watch your face. <laughs> yes, because what happened was that in 2019, I was asked to curate a book festival in Berlin, in Germany. And I had really not been on the literary scene. I didn't know the writers anymore, but I just started writing to absolutely everybody I know. And so Pumla was one of the people that I wrote to, and she said, yes, I'll come. And the organizers were so happy and it was at that book festival that my German publishers discovered that I existed. There you are. <laughs> so thank you and all the other people who were on board at that time. Yes, uh, Zimbabwe is bizarre and it does bizarre things. It's very much like living in a political satire where everything that is said actually means the opposite. In fact, I've begun to use the term doublespeak um, in, when I'm on social media and sometimes in my private life. It really is amazing that a person has the right to demonstrate peacefully and petition the government, and yet you stand on a street corner with a sign and that is interpreted as inciting violence. The court case is ongoing. 
My last appearance, which I think was the 19th or 20th, was on the 10th of this month. Uh, the trial has begun, and the triable matter is the meaning of the words on the placard as to whether words like we want more uh, reform our institutions actually constitute an obscenity or not. So this is where we are. Um, the good thing about it is that it gives one a lot of material to write. <laughs> I mean, I had begun in this mournable body um, and there I had uh, a character of what I think is a fairly typical Zimbabwean. You hear Zimbabweans say, oh, I'm not going to vote because voting doesn't change anything. Why bother? But I do think that that kind of attitude, which some people think is passivity, which some people think is apathy, but I think it does actually mask something far deeper and much more sinister. And it's something that I have suspected. But recently I had a conversation on social media again. Um, a woman had said that her mother was going to vote for a particular party which she didn't think should be voted for. And she was desperate and didn't know what to do, didn't know how to change her mother's mind, didn't think she was going to be able to do it. So there were lots of comments, but I asked her why her mother had taken that position. Um, I got some pushback from people who told me that it was a person's democratic right to vote for whoever they want to vote for, which I totally agreed with. However, the person who had tweeted in the first place about the mother came back and said, during the war, when my mother was pregnant with my sister, she was beaten up by the guerrillas, and so she will always do what is necessary to appease them, more or less, something like that. So I don't really think it is just apathy. I think uh, there is so much trauma, and we did not begin to unpack our war trauma in Zimbabwe. Um, I know that there were pr processes and procedures here in South Africa, for better or for worse, but I do believe that it's always better to begin the process, and one can go on from there. And we've never done it in Zimbabwe. And that kind of silence, which is taken to be peace, means that we simply do not acknowledge the kinds of violence that are historical. Only certain kinds of historical violence are acknowledged. We do not acknowledge other kinds of historical violence. We do not acknowledge violence that has happened since um, independence, um, especially at election time, at times when power is to be redistributed. And so I really think that Zimbabweans are in a state of national trauma and shock, and that unless uh, we can talk about these things and unpack them, it's going to continue like that. But this trauma and shock allows those who have power to define everything, even the meaning of words. And so this is how what I thought was one of the most peaceful statements that I could make at that moment turned into one that could be said to be inciting violence. So now the situation is, 
the ordinary person has not seen what was on those placards. Uh, and so all they hear is somebody was arrested for inciting violence. I had a friend with me, and there was another group of seven people who were arrested um, close to where we were on that day. But there were other people who were arrested. All they hear is that people were arrested for inciting violence, so they believe it. Why shouldn't they? Who is there to tell them that that is not actually the case? And um, this construction has been put in place um, intentionally. And it, it really seems that unless some kind of citizen, peaceful citizen um, pushback can be made to happen, we are going to be in the situation where power can define meaning. Wow, thank you. And it seems to me that, I mean, I'm, I'm going to um, sit with some of those words um, and not immediately respond, but it seems to me that this concern with this interest in this irritation by trauma and the connections between trauma and, and, and time and different um, kinds of violence um, is something that, that we see... Um, explored in the trilogy. Mm -hmm. I, I'm going to call it a trilogy. Um, we're all calling it a trilogy. We don't know that could be four, 15 um, tambuzais, but I'm going to call it a trilogy. I think we're all going to call it a trilogy for the time being until you, know, you decide to um, change our minds if you choose to. But it seems to me that you, this, the, 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 there's a, there's a, there's a pre-existing concern with, with um, in, in, your, in, your, in your fiction, not just in your fiction, but I'll talk about only your fiction today, in your fiction with this idea of what words can be made to mean mm -hmm. and how that relates to ways we think about violence, um, spectacular violence, internal violence, violence that is kind of normalized. Um, and so as we, it, 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 it's a very important part of how you construct Tambuzai. And yet what also strikes me is the way in which, in, I think in South Africa and Zimbabwe and, 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 and Namibia, maybe all over Southern Africa right now, we're spending a lot of time talking about, importantly, about the importance of intergenerational um, dialogue. And it struck me rereading Nervous Conditions and the Book of Not and, and, and This Morning Body in preparation for today, that when we think about that, we often think that people of different generations need to think about, need to think up, need to have conversations about, about violence. But part of what you offer us, now that we have the trilogy, is the capacity to think about layers um, of violence and, and, and trauma, kind of the long reach of history into the present. But also, always, hope. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and, and I think in, 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 this, in this morning body, which I think is the book that I was the most difficult, not difficult to read, but difficult on me emotionally because, because you say you. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, 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 even in that book that you committed to the exploration of trauma and time and uh, through time and different kinds of trauma and violence, but also always to hope. Um, could you say mm -hmm. something to us about, about what that is, why that is. Yes, yes. Um, 
I do think that hope was structured into the trilogy, and it is a trilogy. I promise you, <laughs> it is and will remain a trilogy. But hope is structured into the trilogy because of when I wrote it, which was the early 1980s, which was just after independence when things looked good. And it really did not seem as though we could fail. South Africa might be too big to fail. Zimbabweans were too smart and intelligent and educated to fail. <laughs> <laughs> So th this is what was happening in the early 1980s, and I did believe that we could not fail. And not failing meant fulfilling the promises that were made during the liberation struggle and afterwards, to do with emancipation and equality and uh, dignity and thriving. And so I thought to myself, well, you know, the men are talking about that, but I was a girl pre in pre-independent Zimbabwe in Rhodesia, and I know what happens in families. And so I just want to make sure that the girls are primed so that as they grow into this country where everything is going to be so wonderful, they can stand up and take their due also. So that was the hope. Um, I was a young person, I was in my teens and early 20s during the war, and I didn't see that much, but I saw enough to enable me to understand the nature of violence. Um, I remember one of the things that I saw that impressed me so much was not really an act of violence in itself, but it was just a young gorilla coming to my family home, my parents' house, and I looked at this person and I thought to myself, is this person any older than I am? And I thought, no, this person cannot even be older than I am, but this is someone who has been walking from Mozambique and doing the things my parents have told me that have been done. And that struck me as an intense kind of violence that a young person feels it is better to engage in those kinds of actions than to stay at home. In other words, there is not a home that can be stayed in well. You know, so I, I, I think for me that was the most shocking thing. And it's something that I still feel today when I'm in town and I see the young people coming out of school in their uniform and they're all thinking they're learning, and they're learning the things that are going to enable them to build a sustainable life. And I know what is happening in terms of policy in the country, and I know what is happening on a global stage. And I think to myself, who is preparing these young people to actually be able to build sustainable lives? Um, and to me, that seems like an act of violence to prevent people from being able to construct themselves in a way that they can live a dignified and satisfying life. I mean, slavery did that. Colonialism did that. So now we're seeing it continue to happen. So for me, I see this kind of silent violence that the Zimbabweans often say is peace. Because I think coming from a traditional society, Peace is established when you do what the authorities tell you to do. Hmm. 
Peace is disturbed when one rebels against authority. That is the traditional way of thinking about things. I know. If somebody could maybe please... I'm, I'm trying to sit back, but then I want to talk to you. So, <laughs> Thank you. That's much better. Thank you so much. Yes. And, and so I don't really think that we have interrogated that idea of peace. Uh, the Shona word for peace is uh, derived from the word for silence, being quiet. So I think it is very difficult for us to really understand that you cannot dissociate peace from thriving. Meanwhile, authorities will tell you that you have peace because all is quiet. You see? So I think this is the dilemma that we're in, and these are the conversations that we are actually beginning to have. I think the situation has grown so dire that Zimbabweans are willing to look at what they thought was peace and think, is this really peace? And that was all factored into this novel because of some of those experiences that I'd seen these young people during the war. I was really very concerned about the effect on young people of that war. And of course, we see it today. Um, we have people who are now my age because they fought when they were my age, and they have never really come to terms with that experience. There was said to have been money set aside for counseling and rehabilitation, but I do not think that they received much of it. Hmm. And so I want to... Um, I'm reminded, listening to you now, um, of the Kenyan um, feminist Wambui Mwangi's essay, Silence is a Woman. Um, when she's thinking about the way, you know, so those connections between, between silence and, 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 and peace. And, um, and, and she's talking about it in the Kenyan context, of course, where she argues that, 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 that the price that women um, historically have had to pay for belonging to the new nation has been, has been silence. Also reminded of Barbara Boswell, who says one of the conditions of the, new, of the making of the new South Africa was defining violence so that it always, atrocities in the, in the TRC, so that it always excluded uh, violence against women specifically. And so I'm thinking about all of these echoes and I'm thinking, um, of course, this is part of why your work resonates so much is that in, in, in all, all three of your novels, um, is that in one sense they're very Zimbabwean and in another sense we read them and I'm like, oh my God, this is this is such a South African and this is such a Southern African and a Kenyan reads it and thinks this is such a, and a I don't know, maybe a British person or a German person says, oh my God, this is such a German um, um, uh, novel. And of course, one of the things that you, although while bringing our attention to, to, to those connections between, between peace as, as, and, 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 and silence, um, I'm struck by the ways in which the characters um, so, for example, some of your most willful character, and a character that my, whenever I've taught nervous conditions, um, is always my student's favorite, one of my student's favorite um, characters, Lucia, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? And of course, Lucia in, in this vulnerable body goes to, goes, goes to war. She becomes a guerrilla. Um, Netzai also becomes a, a guerrilla, um, Tambu's um, younger sister, who's, 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 who's very little in... in, in 
in, in nervous conditions. Um, and this, and, 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 and they refuse the silence. Mm -hmm. and, they, and in their refusal of the silence, they are in many ways um, questioning the conditions of women's entry into, into peace or just kind of belonging into a, into a um, and so you, you're drawing attention to the, to, the, to the importance of silence, but it seems to me that you are consistently writing um, against that silencing or the conditions that require silence um, as, 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 um, as, 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 as the ticket into mm -hmm. kind of proper, 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 proper belonging. I wonder, though, if you can think of, if you, if you can help us a little bit navigate the connections between that refusal um, and the breakdown that we, the psychic breakdown that we see in, 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 in this mournable body, which I think was prefigured in some ways and connects back to, to the first novel mm -hmm. in, 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 the, in, the, in the trilogy. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, first of all, I would say that when I began writing, I did think that this kind of silence, the demand of silence in order to belong was something that pertained to women. And I would say that it still perhaps pertains to women more than it does to men. But I see that as repression increases, other categories are also subsumed in that. So in Zimbabwe now, there is a tendency for people to tell people who voice dissent that they should either become a politician or be silent. Because politicians are a category who are allowed to voice opposition. But if you're a good citizen, you should be supporting in silence. So um, the terrain of silence is expanding in Zimbabwe. And that is worrisome, but the positive, as I said, is that it pushes people to talk back to power. It really was a difficult balancing act to find out how to write this story of women who wanted things, women who had desire, not necessarily desire for men. Yes, Lucia had desire for men, but there were other things that the women desired. Education, um, joy, Nyasha wanted peace and joy to feel whole. This, uh, there were a whole range of women's desires. Lucia wants... Um, economic success. So it was very difficult for me to find a way to express this desire of women, female desire, in a way that was not so overtly subversive, that people would simply not want to engage with it. And when I talk about that, I mean not only men, but also women. I was aware that the primary audience that I had in mind which was Zimbabwean women, were in a state where they were not going to be able to think uh, too far beyond what was allowed. So it had to be a story that was engaging, that could lead them in. And I think that is why the first location is in the village. And you know that you are with downtrodden people. And I hope to evoke sympathy for them, so that whatever happened after that, you would think, well, you know, these people are so downtrodden, of course they have to do this. 
coming through to the end to this mournable body, we find that Tambudzai actually uses this victim mentality. This is another way of silencing yourself by taking on the victim mentality. And she come, becomes quite obnoxious, actually, <laughs> in this mournable body. Um, but it was important for me to show, because I had seen this happening in Zimbabwe. In fact, our government does it all the time. You know, they're told uh, you, you cannot peg the Zimbabwean dollar to the US dollar. You'll cause a crisis. They peg it. The crisis happens, and then they blame someone else, <laughs> this victim mentality. So it's important for me to interrogate that. And that was even more difficult because Tambuzai was no longer the sweet village girl that, that people would allow things and give room to. She was this rather <coughs> unpleasant woman. And so this is where I had to find out um, a form that would enable me to tell the story. And this is why... I used the second person that you mentioned. But at each stage, it was a negotiation between, okay, I know that a lot of what I'm saying is going to be unpleasant to people. It's things that I know that Zimbabwean society does not really want to interrogate. How can I bring those things into consciousness in narrative in a way that really um, enables the person to stay with the story rather than puts them off? Thank you, Zizi. So, you also are someone who is incredibly, I mean, you speak about it as the creative economy when you're talking about your own work, but also kind of there's just the, the power of the imagination. You insist still, um, thankfully, that, that writing is, 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 is courageous. You um, are unshakable in your insistence too. That the, on, on, on the connections between the imagination um, and, and, and experience, the imagination and, and, and changing something, not just in the world, but the very ways in which we feel in our, in our, in our, in our own um, skins. And so, and of course, as the world agrees, um, you are certainly one of the finest um, writers alive today. Can you share something um, about what was joyful about writing this mournable body specifically? <laughs> All right, uh, I'll start by taking a detour. <laughs> <laughs> writing is courageous. I really do believe that writing is courageous. And I think all writing is courageous. I think even the most obscene propaganda is courageous because you are putting this out there and you are identifying with it, and you are hoping that people will also identify with it. Uh, to write, you have to put something of your life force into your writing. And so this is true, whatever you are writing. Which is why pe people are sometimes surprised when people fall for propaganda and those kinds of narratives. But actually, if people do not know better they cannot distinguish the nature of the force, and that force is operating. And so I think we tend sometimes to underestimate the, that kind of force, that it operates just like any other force out there. Okay, so then you wanted me to talk about what? <laughs> I wanted you to talk about, 
I mean, I, 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 we've talked about some of the difficult heavy lifting, what the difficult heavy lifting work that your, that your work does. I, I, I wanted you to talk about, I wanted us to talk a little bit about the joyful heavy lifting, some of the joy. No, I mean, because it is, it's, you didn't, you know what, you didn't write a collection of essays. And I know that you, we have a fantastic, no doubt, I'm anticipating and sitting on the edge of my seat, fantastic collection of essays coming out from you with, from Faber later on this year. But we're not talking about those yet, we're talking about the novels. And so you didn't write journalism, which is fabulous, and you didn't write essays, which are fabulous. You wrote novels, and 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 so I want you to think about. I want you to talk to us about some of some of the joy um, in 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 the writing, some of the pleasure, some of the play in the writing, because I know that there is, because we can feel it, even as you're forcing us and changing us and making us do things in the world? That's, that's a really difficult question for me. You know, when I think about writing, I don't think of joy. <laughs> no, I really don't. Uh, I had a conversation with the South African architects, uh, Sumeya Valley, the other day. And I told her about what it felt like. It felt like writing into the void. I always told myself, you're writing into, a vo into the void. But there was nothing else to do. I mean, that was the one thing that kind of like happened on its own. Ideas just came and if I sat down and started thinking about the ideas, I was able to write them down. So I thought, well, this is something I can do. And so in the beginning, um, it was something I could do, but nobody cared. Like, okay, you can do that, but so what? <laughs> <laughs> and it, it took a long time, um, a couple of decades uh, before I really uh, um, could sustain myself in any way from my writing, which is why I went into film. There was no joy in it. <laughs> and the playfulness, yes, the playfulness is there, you know, but I remember... I think I've, I've, I mentioned this in the book of essays that's coming out. I remember that at one point, my parents were able to buy my brother and I bicycles. So we got onto these bicycles and we started riding around ferociously. So anybody who saw us would say, oh, the Dangarimba children are playing. We never had a smile on our faces. <laughs> we were so grim and we were just kind of riding for dear life. You know, it was that kind of situation. <laughs> so I'm very sorry. Uh, <laughs> when, I, when I read bits and pieces, which I tend not to do, um, sometimes I smile, but that's now with distance. <laughs> but I prefer actually not to read my work, not even for audiences like yourself, so thank you for not expecting that of me today. And definitely I refuse to read from this mournable body. I'm so glad I'm not, I didn't ask you to read that. <laughs> but I think I had an intuition that, you, that, 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 that that's what you would say. I wonder if you, and the, and the recognition, I mean, the last few years, I mean, on the one hand, you've been taught across the world, you've been translated, you were on the classics list, you were 100 most um, important books of the 20th century, oh, not even 20th century, what did they say? Um, just mo that shaped the world, right? Most, 100 most important books that shaped the world. 
Um, and so in one sense, I, uh, uh, clearly you had a readership. Clearly your work was resonating and, 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 doing, and doing all of this work. Um, what has this explosion of, um, of, of not critical acclaim, because that was always there, of, of, of these awards meant for you and, 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 and as a writer um, and, and what you're able to do and what, how do you make sense of it? Um, I don't really. I, it, it just kind of happens and it's nice, when, especially when the awards are endowed with reasonable amounts of money. So that's really nice and um, I get to travel, I get to go to London or I get to go to Berlin. All of that is very nice but I'm kind of glad that I didn't get that kind of recognition early on because I've really had to live with myself as an unsuccessful writer for a long time. And I have had to engage with my own commitment. And at some point, I just had to tell myself that, okay, Titi, this is what you do. And um, you just have to keep on doing it the best you can. So that's what I've been doing. I... You know, I try not to identify with my books. There's an increasing pressure in the industry to make the writer the product. Mm. And like the books are the byproduct of this product. And this is something that I am resisting. You know, I think I do my work when I can. I, what I have done goes out and it must sink no, sink or swim. What do you say? Swim or sink? How do you say that? <laughs> yes. Okay, but anyway, it, it must survive on its own merit. Otherwise, I don't know, there, probably there are other writers who do things differently, but I would go mad if I had to identify with my writing all the time. So I'm really glad that I don't have to. It's becoming more difficult because that's the industry and the way we are going... You know, the world wants people up there to, to, to watch, basically. Um, but it's something that I intend to keep resisting for the rest of my life. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of PageCast. We have an incredible lineup of author interviews. So head over to our Facebook and Instagram and follow Jonathan Ball Publishers to stay updated and in the know regarding future episodes. Thanks for your interest in the story behind the story. Happy reading from everyone at PageCast.